everybody's going through something. So we look at our senior leaders like maybe one day they're going to change and acknowledge me. No, they they got squirrels running around in their heads too. <laughs> they they have problems too. What are we going to do differently to make them look up? Be like, wait, did she just start talking? And and they hired you for your talent that you're keeping to yourself. So it's a self-perpetuating disaster. Yes. And it's it's definitely not a good scenario where you're looking for others to tell you what your worth and value is. That's not a good way to enter into a situation. I mean, it, it just doesn't end well. I mean, that was what was creating the anger within me. When I would look around and say, okay, I have two advanced degrees, or I've been practicing longer than others, but I seem to not be able to get into a role that really reflects my ability. So stop accepting the roles. <laughs> Right? Start setting goals and and moving towards them. Welcome to Why She's Winning with your host, Christy Rutherford, a master of office politics and self-care advocacy. Christy's clients have received over $10 million in salary raises in a pandemic. Surprised that women are still getting paid during these challenging times? It's possible for you, too. You can have it all if you believe you deserve it. Christy and her guests will assist you with that. Let's get started. Welcome back, everyone, to Why She's Winning. I am your host, Christy Rutherford, and today we have one of my favorite people in the whole wide world, Michelle Pierre Poinsett. How are you? I'm well, thank you. Glad to be here. Awesome. Y'all like to have fun. We're going to have a little bit of fun on this interview. I hope that you find it fun. I always find you fun, Christy. <laughs> <laughs> We worked together in 2020 and yes. your results have been one, just amazing. One, I'm proud of you and Thanks. the growth that you've had internally, which affected your external condition. So tell the audience a little bit about what were some of the challenges that you were having that made you want to reach out and, and change really? Well, it's interesting because I didn't fully see the challenges that I needed to work on when I first reached out to you. Um, you're not the first coach that I've worked with. I've worked with a couple of others that have given me or to help me position myself to advance within my career um, as an in-house lawyer. Um, and that's what I thought I was getting with you. I was ready to go to the next level, go from director to an executive level. And um, you were outspoken and direct in some of what I, what I saw on social media. So I thought, you know, she seems like she's a good person to work with. And you seemed, I seemed comfortable with you as a fellow woman of color. So that was also important to me. But after our first conversation, I kind of walked away thinking, I might need a little bit more help. Because <laughs> um, you really had me thinking about some internal work that I needed to do. And that me being able to advance in my career was actually more within my control than I initially thought. It wasn't just executive presence, which I thought was what I needed to advance. I actually needed to do some internal work within me, which in turn would allow me to show up differently for those opportunities that would kind of unfold on their own, as opposed to me feeling like I'm, I'm chasing after something and I need to create this persona of myself that fits within what I thought was required within the corporate environment to advance. Yes, that's so good. So let's talk about executive presence with what you thought it was and now what you know it to be. 
I mean, initially I thought it was showing up to meetings prepared to put on a show. Yep. Yes. And to put on a show in a way that appealed to the individuals that were at the table. Mm-hmm. More often than not, they didn't look like me and they were typically male. So I needed to know how to show up in a way where I can be seen and viewed as an effective leader and not the angry black woman. And to be viewed as somebody that was productive and it's not just wearing the suit and, and pulling your hair back in a neat ponytail. Yeah. You know, I wasn't on the golf course making deals. Yep. Yep. So I needed to figure out how to get to the table and um, highlight my skills in a way for people to say, okay, I think she's ready to advance. That's what I thought. After the work that I've done with you so far, I realize it's really not that. I think a part of it now is how I show up and how I determine my own worth. I think before I was allowing others to determine my worth, as opposed to me knowing my worth and just showing up in that person that that know I need to be valued and not letting others dictate that for me. And I think showing up with that confidence, knowing my worth, so then other people are like, wow, I can see it now with her. Before I felt like I needed to ask for permission, whereas now I'm showing up knowing my value and it's easier for folks to really just kind of come on board and give me room and space to do what it is I can do to advance within my career. I know that's a mouthful. Does that make sense? No, I, I love it. One of the things that I love about what you said, so yes, we should be clear and most women should be following because we keep thinking that as women of color and then just women in general, and then black women on top of that, that executive presence means being more like them you know, crossing your arms and furrowing your brow and, and, and be more productive when that's not really what it means. And if women haven't progressed in the past 200 years, or especially with all the things that are going on in the past 20 years, with all of this training where we're talking about it, we're learning the wrong things. You talked about when you just showed up as yourself, that made you more confident and you knew your value, which made you more confident. And then when you saw within yourself, they saw it. Tell the audience a little bit more about that. For me, a part of it was I was waiting for other people to tell me I was great, as opposed to me telling myself, I know I'm great and just showing up in my greatness. Mm-hmm. Waiting for others to give me permission to be great when I said, now I'm great and I can step into that. And to me, I think mm-hmm. a lot of that is worthiness kind of issues. And also just, I... I tend to be a bit of an introvert. When I when I was in those scenarios where I felt like I had something to offer, I felt like I needed to wait for someone to give me permission to speak up. And I would shrink and become small. As opposed to now, I feel as though I know that what I have to say has value, so I need to share that. And I'm finding that the more that I share, the more that people look to me and ask me my opinion, quite frankly, Um, Whereas before I was just sitting around waiting for people to ask and wondered why they never asked. So I needed to, to, to do my part to show up, show what it is that I have to offer. And people tend to respond better in that way. And I think a part of it too is I have a different perspective. I think I always had, you know, I was angry, quite frankly. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I would, you know, step into these jobs thinking I didn't need to change. I just needed to find the right job at the right place that valued what I had to offer And now I'm realizing, no, it was me. 
I was the common denominator at all these different jobs. So something within me or something I was doing was not working. So I think that was part of it too. Like I had limiting beliefs about myself and my ability, which in turn blocked opportunities for me to advance. So I was limiting myself. Not to say that systemic racism doesn't exist, but I see the role that I played in limiting myself. And I'm starting to remove those barriers and I'm seeing what comes from that and the benefit of that. Woo! That's what I'm talking about. Yes. But I had to do the work first. I had to do some real healing with trauma to get me there. It wasn't easy. And as you know, I'm, I'm a bit of a yogi. I've had other coaches. I've, I've gone to therapy. I've done yoga. You know, I used to meditate, maybe not on a regular basis, but I never did this type of level of work to heal prior trauma, to really release and, and move on when I thought I did, honestly. And I think I also have a different definition for what strength means before I thought I needed to kind of push through situations and circumstances that I didn't like. And never really understood what it means to really take care of myself. To me now, I view vulnerability differently. And I view being able to say, no, I can't do this is probably takes more strength than to keep on saying yes and pushing through scenarios that just don't work for me. I I love it because you're dropping so many gems here because we always, one, think that they're trying to lock us out of the room. They are against us. Look, let's be clear, which is a strong narrative in the state of the women in the workplace for McKinsey, organizations need to do more for women of color. It's in all of the articles, Forbes articles, Bain studies. Managers need to be more receptive to what women of color have to offer. Well, they are receptive, but but women of color are sitting in the room waiting for somebody to ask them the question. Right. This is what I understand and what I know to be true. Everybody's going through something. So we look at our senior leaders like, Maybe one day they're going to change and acknowledge me. No, they, they got squirrels running around in their heads too. <laughs> they, they have problems too. What are we going to do differently to make them look up and be like, wait, did she just start talking? And, and they hired you for your talent that you're keeping to yourself. So it's a self-perpetuating disaster. Yes. And it, it's definitely not a good scenario where you're looking for others to tell you what your worth and value is. That's not a good way to enter into a situation. I mean, it, it just doesn't end well. I mean, that was what was creating the anger within me. When I would look around and say, okay, I have two advanced degrees, or I've been practicing longer than others, but I seem to not be able to get into a role that really reflects my ability. So stop accepting the roles. <laughs> Right. Start setting goals and and moving towards them. But you were accepting the roles, but you weren't showing up. How you were in person wasn't matching the paper. Agreed. Because you were waiting for them to ask you and they didn't ask. So they kept moving on without you. And you were like, no, 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 wait, aren't you going to ask me? And now it's, which made you angry. So even when you did talk, you were so mad. (laughs) It it, it didn't come out well. Let's just say that. It didn't make for pleasant experiences. But at the end of the day, who wants to work with some? And then the thing is what I realized too is that there was resentment that was building up, right? And as much as I felt like some people didn't know my value, I started to treat other people in a way that wasn't nice either. Like I would just be looking for the opportunity to be like, see, you don't know nothing. And I'm going to try like that to others. 
When, I mean, I didn't want to be treated that way. So why was I reacting that way? That doesn't make for anyone saying, yeah, let's let's vote for Michelle to, to lead more people and add to her team. I mean, it, it, it just doesn't add up. But I was just so deep in my own pity <laughs> that I just couldn't get out of my own way. That's so good. Ooh, you said pity. Mm. Because it's anger, resentment, hate. And it's not hate in a bad way, but it is hate because you're mad because you have all this talent and nobody sees it. And then it becomes haterade. Yes. <laughs> and then pity. And what I love about what you were sharing is you did it. Like, hello. It's like we're creating all of these scenarios, but we're blaming other people and we're not moving ahead and we're not getting in a C-suite. So every time I read all these articles and all of these people are pointing fingers at everybody else, it's 20,000 people pointing to other fingers. And I'm, and I'm the one like this. Just go ahead and turn that finger around. It's you. And it's funny that you say that because now you've helped me to kind of slow down my thought process a bit and I start to dissect situations. Like when I feel myself getting angry, I start to think about why am I angry? And there would be scenarios where I would see other women in particular that are in higher roles. And I would look and I, I would hate to your point. But now I'm like, don't hate. Like figure out how to emulate. That's my thing now. And it's like, go, go talk to the woman and found out, you know, how did she get to where she is now? As opposed to sitting from afar, all upset and angry. The anger is not doing anything for me. When I can turn that around and say, you know, step up to the to the woman and say, look, you know, I see where you are in your role. You know, how did you get there? I mean, that would help me more than just sitting, you know, be feeling small, not saying anything and just being angry. Now that you have the clarity, now you can have the conversations. Yes. With, without blaming. Everybody's going through something, but it takes you to be like, and, and then what did you find the receptivity of the women? Because there are a lot of women who hate on the women at the higher levels. And I'm like, yeah, they'll talk to you right. <laughs> if you go ask them a question, you know, they'll give you advice. If you're worth pouring into and you're not coming in day one, pointing the finger, talking about them. Right. And I think that's the thing, right? It's not me saying, for example, a woman in color in a senior level going up to her and saying, oh my God, how did you get past the systemic racism? I, I don't think it's that. <laughs> I mean, I think the approach is I have hopes of yeah. potentially being in a particular position such as yours. How did you get there? Do you have any tips? I mean, I, to your point, the approach makes a difference, but I was so angry that even if I were to approach someone at that point, I'd be putting out negativity and I, and now I'm realizing that comes back to me in an, in a negative way. And it's not productive. We talked about where you were and then where you are, which was not an easy path. You did a lot of work and, and it was all internal. What was maybe one thing that you did or one thing that I said that made a, that made a click for you that really turned the light bulb on. It was like this. It's, me. I mean, I think there were a couple of things. I think the the 21 day forgiveness challenge was definitely a point that caused me to start reflecting because after you forgive someone, then you have to release some of that anger. And I needed to accept that, you know, that individual did the best that he or she can do and I needed to forgive them. If I forgive Tom, I can't be mad at Tom anymore and carry that anger with me. So releasing some of that anger it freed up my heart for other stuff. So I think the forgiveness challenge was a big part 
for me. And the other thing was doing the work of meditating daily and taking walks outside in nature. Um, doing those activities helped me to clear my mind and to have those conversations with myself to dissect maybe why I was reacting the way I was reacting. Like before I was just in the the day-to-day -day activities, going through my to-do list where I didn't even acknowledge those times where I felt myself getting angry and the tension in my body and the tension in my chest. Whereas now I'm mindful of that and I can just take a few deep breaths, don't allow that to escalate and make sense of why that I feel the way I feel. So I hear a large part of that was one, you had to acknowledge that you were angry and we don't want to do that because anger is our normal. If we're, if I'm baseline angry, what's the difference between level eight angry and level 10? But don't you dare tell me as a sister that I'm an angry black woman because you would get cussed out. Like you want, it's not my, yeah. you, you would get the business. And I think that's what it is. I was always offended when people would say that to me. And it got bad when your kids look at you and tell you that you're always angry. <laughs> that ain't funny, but and it's just that just made me more angry as opposed <laughs> to me saying, Yeah, I am angry. I have reason to be, and I'm trying to work on that. We're justified in our anger. Yes. But then because of what's happening, and because you're not getting ahead, and because you do have people who aren't as qualified and and they're not as smart as you. So externally, you're justified in your anger for all the things that they're doing to you. And they're not asking you to come into the room and they're not asking you to network and they're not having the conversations with you and they're not asking you for your feedback and they're not asking, they're not asking, they're not asking. We're creating the cycle to be justified in our anger and then don't even know we're angry. Oh yeah, you mad as, you mad as H-E-L-L, that's one. And then over time, so it wasn't the, oh, I'm angry. Now I can see it. It was, okay, I'm angry. So now let me dissipate this anger because now I have to work on it. And you were deeply rooted. <laughs> you know, you got the grip on anger. You got some people who kind of rub the tree and you guys are people who like this and you were like this. Yes. And so it was like the peeling the, you know, your fingers off of, the things that you were angry about. And what I loved about what you said, forgiveness is free. Walking was free. And then meditating was free. So this isn't about going out and doing cryogenics. And I see these people doing these outrageous things. Right. And like, you know, you can chill out for free. And you know, that that's the thing, right? I was the person that would get a regular massage. I was going to hot yoga and spin class. And what I realized through working with you, I mean, it felt good in the moment, but within 10 minutes of me being done with that activity, I would look at my work phone, an email would trigger me and I'd go right back to being that angry person. Right back in the hole. I mean, something, I clearly wasn't getting to the root of the issues that were causing me to be angry. And I think that's the difference now. I mean, it's still hard. I mean, don't, don't think, I'm not perfect. There, there are still those times where I get upset, but I can make sense of why and I, and turn it into something that's productive as opposed to this cycle of just being angry. Yeah. Yeah. I love it. I mean, a large part of the show is what I want women to realize because Greek women are angry. French women are angry. Brazilian yeah. women are angry. Sisters are angry. But I really want women to know is that we get caught and we're trapped there in our 40s. And a lot of women die like that later. And then they also were creating the medical conditions. Florence Goval Shin said, unforgiveness is the most prolific cause of disease. She said, it's not a matter of what's the matter with you, but who's the matter with you? 
And James Allen talked about anxiety quickly demoralizes the body and leaves it open to the disease and decay. So they were talking about this in 1909 and, and in the right. 1930s. And so the number one cause of death for black women in America is heart disease and cancer. Right. And a lot of that is emotional baggage that we're dragging around with us. And then the, the workplace only exacerbates yes. the challenge that we have. Tell the audience a little bit about not the, you know, your, your childhood stuff, but how some of the same things in your childhood showed up at work. Because I, I talk to women all the time and you're not yeah. straight to the childhood because that's my thing. That's trauma default. I'd be like this. So tell me what happened in your childhood. Life experiences for me in childhood, I'm a cancer survivor. So to your point, you know, I've been there, I've done that. And you would think after facing death, I would think, why do I let these things upset me and cause me to be angry? I should be happy that I'm alive. But there was so much to your point, childhood trauma that I hadn't processed that I just carried that burden and that weight with me. I grew up in an environment, I'm Haitian. Both of my parents were really strict. Um, they were definitely the type of parents where I just do as they wanted me to do. And a part of that started to create resentment that stayed with me. And I didn't have an opportunity to think on my own. So if I was ever in a scenario where I felt someone say something to me where they weren't allowing me to, I don't know, speak my truth or I, I felt like they were being controlling or I don't know, hindering me in some way, I realized that I was reverting back to that little girl that was upset at the way her parents were treating her, but I didn't feel like I can do anything about it because I just had to comply as a child. My parents were not very affectionate. I mean, there were times, quite frankly, there was a bit of emotional abuse. You know, I, there were times where my father would tell me, you're not intelligent. So if I was ever in a situation where I felt like someone was somehow alluding to the fact that I wasn't intelligent, then that was it. I'd, I'd go off. And those type of patterns did not help me within the workplace because those were triggers for me. And a part of the work that I did with you is making sense of what those triggers were or are and understanding how to kind of walk myself off the ledge before going off. Because at that point, to be honest with you, I was irrational because there yes. were some times I'm seeing yes. now that, I, you know, how dare this person question my intelligence? No, they weren't questioning my intelligence. They just had a simple question <laughs> that they wanted me to answer. Like, it wasn't that deep. Yeah. And I was getting upset over things that I, I really didn't need to. So that was, that's important. Not to say that, I mean, there's a lot of crappy stuff in the world. Um, it's, it's hard being a black woman in corporate America, but I definitely was kind of, um, it didn't take much to set me off. Woo. Walk around ticking time bomb, ready to yeah. get your business in. Yeah. And for me, it's not about who's, my work is just different. It was not a comparison of this or that, but I was reading actually one of my, uh, my friends uh, who's a therapist talk about triggers. And he said that triggers are excuses. And he went on and on and on. And like, don't come in here saying that's just my trigger. Like, I'm not trying to hit that. That's an excuse. And da, 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 da. they don't exist in my world. And I thought about for me and the work that I do, which is why it's different. So it's, so, it, you know, I tell people technically I'm an executive coach. Kind of because I work with leaders because we're the, we, we need the most help, but I also do a lot of deep work and triggers is where the magic is for me. Because if you can understand why, like you said, somebody yeah. asked you a simple question, but your mind, poof, 
you throw lighter fluid on them and they yeah. were the business and they were like, what did I do? And so we're always being accused of overreacting and don't tell me I'm overreacting, which throws more lighter fluid. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. and you're reacting from the mind of what your dad said to you like 40 years ago and you have right. no idea. And, and then all the baggage that came along with that to, to now incinerate this one person who just had a simple question and right. you being irrational that was so good because I always we're, we're incapable of rational thought when we're rage. Yeah, I I would say that that is correct, <laughs> and I've um I've experienced that, and I think me being able to to not allow myself to get to that tipping point has allowed me to communicate better with others, which in turn creates better work relationships. Yeah, as I said, I'm still a work in progress, but I definitely can now see some of the things that I was doing to myself that wasn't helping me. Tell the audience about how, cause I used to go home wiped out. Yes. <laughs> like I have, and I didn't have kids. Like I tell people, I couldn't imagine being married with kids in, in the, in this mental state that I was in at the senior level. Cause it, it's different when we're younger. Cause there aren't any really, really expectations, but your trauma default exacerbates the more pressure you're under. Yes. Because now you're you're caught and you're swirling. Tell us the difference between how you used to come home and how you are, you know, and I know we're working from home now, but people are still being triggered on Zoom. Tell us the difference in, I think, your personal quality of life and how that's changed. I mean, I, that's changed as well. I'm, I'm a wife. I'm a mom. I have a, a nine and an 11 year old. And I didn't hear it before, but as I started to do the work with you, I, I started hearing my kids saying, you're angry a lot. Like, it's like, I would come home and it's like, you know, what happened at work today? What are you angry about? And Yikes. yeah, I didn't realize how bad it was until I started to do the work with you and actually started to listen to what my kids had to say and what my husband had to say. And I think that's what helped propel me to, to do the deep dive with you also. That's not what I want for my kids. In doing the work, I think there's definitely, it feels lighter in the house now. I have fun with my kids and my husband in a way that I didn't before. Yes. That's a huge benefit. And I want to stay that way. And I want to figure out how to, you know, continue to do that and, and make that just how I live my life as opposed to trying to compartmentalize it and say, oh, I can be, I used to think to myself, I can be miserable at work, but I'll turn it off when I get home and it's not going to affect home. And I didn't realize that same B that I was at work, that was the same person when I came home. And my kids realized that. And that impacted how they interacted with me and what, what they thought of me. Both kids have no desire to be a lawyer because they think being a lawyer means being miserable at work and being, quite frankly, they're not going to say it, but a miserable person. I'm helping to change that narrative now, which I'm really proud of. That's so good. One, because they were telling you probably for years, you never yeah. heard them. Nope. One, going back to your parents, and, and we talked about this and it was like five or so minutes ago. We look at our parents as our heroes and we don't understand that they're broken people too. Yes. And with their problems. And, and then what I love to do is go back to the parents' childhood, which now you can see why the dad was broken and why he acts the way he does and why the mom was broken. Two broken people now having kids that they're breaking in their sometimes conscious and unconscious dysfunctions. Right. Because parents think that they're doing their best. They think they're doing their best by pushing you to be a lawyer so you won't be poor. 
pushing you to to get good grades in school so you won't be like the some of the American kids who drop out of school in high school. That's not going to happen in my house. My kids are going to be successful. And then you become successful. I work with a lot of first generation, whether people move from different countries or whether they were born in the countries, you know, with their parents. There are so many challenges that first generation people have because of the standards that their parents place on them, but the parents have made a sacrifice for their kids. So they have high expectations and there is so much shattering in that, in the now adult kids who are now passing it down to their kids. And it, it only takes one person, Michelle, to get whole in their families, to set families free for generations. And I remember you saying that during one of our sessions, and that really resonated with me. It made me feel empowered in that way, because especially as I was going through the forgiveness exercise, I thought about my parents. My father has since passed, um, but my mother's still alive. And when I talked to her, she wouldn't know how to show me affection because she didn't experience that as a child. Exactly. Why would I expect anything more from her? And I think that concept of knowing that she did the best that she can do and that I need to forgive her for for how she may have harmed me in a way that wasn't intentional is what allows me to move on and to release some of that trauma. And to your point, with the hopes of breaking that cycle, so I'm not passing it on to my kids. You know, Louise Hay said, forgive your parents because they did the best they could with what they had and what they knew at the time. And the thing about the work that we do is if you can see your parents from the rational adult mind, not the mind of the wounded child, because the wounded child can never see your parents properly. But if you understand how tough it was from the rational adult mind, seeing yourself in the movie, you'd be like this. So how can I really expect the perfect childhood when they were just incapable of giving it to me? And that's how you truly forgive. Yeah, I agree. And I, and that forgiveness is not, it's not just for the benefit of my relationship with my mother today. It's for the benefit of me not walking around with this weight on my shoulders saying I'm miserable because my mother didn't show me affection. I mean, I think that's huge to be able to shift my perspective in that way, I think has freed me to be happier in my life, not just in terms of my relationship with my mother, just in general. I had you start dancing because yeah. you take yourself very seriously, as as yeah. all good lawyers do. <laughs> I do. <laughs> Talk to the, the listeners about the benefits of just moving and like actually being happy. You know, I think something that you that you really um help me with is you ask me what activities kind of bring me joy, and dancing is definitely one of them. Um, At the point that we met, I wasn't dancing very often. I tend to be kind of serious for the most part, but to be able to dance (laughs) and to feel that joy. And then I I would hear you in my head, like, I need to figure out how the joy that I feel while I'm dancing, I feel in every other aspect of my life. Yes. And I think that was huge in me in terms of evaluating how I'm spending my time, who am I spending it with, you know, what am I doing So that joy that I have when I'm dancing, like it stays within me and just I can carry it with me in other aspects of my life. And when I need to remember, I just got to dance again. Before, I think I used to think I enjoyed dancing and dancing would bring me joy, but that's just not my life. Whereas now it's, no, that can be my life. I mean, things happen in life that are 
that are horrible, but I, I still owe it to myself to put myself in, in position to feel joy as, as often as possible. So that movement is very helpful for me. And then just, just listening to the music is, it's, it's just fun. You're a cancer survivor, which is phenomenal. And I keep forgetting because it's not a part of your present. It matters. I'm not saying that it doesn't matter. Yeah. Sometimes people use that as a reason for why they're fearful or want, you know, either you can go either way. You can be like, I'm I'm afraid it's going to happen. So I'm going to live safe and in a bubble forever, or I'm just going to go all the way out and shave my head and jump off cliffs and all those other kind of things. But you didn't lift. You, you just stayed there. Does that make sense? And it, and it's funny in some ways, I think I became even more conservative because at the time that it happened, I was just so focused on going through treatment and doing everything I needed to do to prevent a recurrence that I didn't realize I wasn't living. Like I was eating right. I had the plant-based diet. I was doing the yoga. I was doing the meditation. I was getting acupuncture. I was doing, I was combining Eastern and Western medicine. And I was about, I thought I was healing. I didn't realize that that wasn't the case until I started working with you and digging deeper and realizing, like, even when I get angry now, to your point, you know, I've been through cancer. Like, why am I upset that I think somebody's <laughs> talking to me sideways at work? Who cares? <laughs> you know, it, 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 now I can laugh at it, whereas before I'd be ready to explode. But yes, I definitely... I didn't heal in the way that I thought I did. And I think that's the biggest aha moment for me. I was physically healing, but spiritually and emotionally, I was not. And I feel like that's where I am now. It's more of a holistic approach Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and really working towards being whole. What are two things that you think the audience can do now to be able to get to the other side of their joy? Can I say three things? I think it definitely that forgiveness yep, yep, exercise. Yeah. I think the forgiveness exercise is huge. Making time to walk and meditate. I think that's that would be number two. Um, and I think the third thing is really identifying those activities that bring you joy and doing them as often as possible. And setting a goal for yourself that you want to feel that way as often as you can every day. And then everything else will somewhat fall into place over time. I love it because the, the, we forget what it's like to be happy. Just to expand a little bit on, on the exercise, what brings you joy? Dancing. Okay, yes. great. So dance enough and be like, okay, you remember what that feels like? Yes, I love it. Make that a part of your life. Do more things that make you feel like that. Go ahead. And it's, I, I'm almost embarrassed to say this, but I actually had to set an alarm on my phone to dance every day at 12 p.m. That's not, it's not, no, it's, it's, you're, you're a structured woman. Go ahead. And in the beginning, it was like, this is set, like, I need to set, schedule time to experience joy. So in the beginning, I was like, wow, this is, I'm kind of sad. <laughs> but I needed that and I needed to feel it often enough, yep. consistently enough, where now when I decide what do I want to do or not want to do, I can think, if I don't think it's going to bring me that type of joy that I experienced when dancing, I'm not going to waste my time with it. Yes. And then that creates a Michelle that just doesn't get as angry. Hallelujah. So it sounds simple and quirky in terms of scheduling time to, to have or do those activities that bring you joy, but it's really important. And to do it consistently. 
even if it's just five minutes. That was huge for me. So the last thing, the thing about it is you were committed. We're so busy and creating and sustaining a new habit is the hardest thing that you'll do. Yes. So being happy is a new habit for you. I think before it was just, all right, this thing that I'm working on may suck, but I'm a strong woman, so I got to push through it. And just, I mean, I went from happiness being my baseline to I'm miserable, but I just have to push through it because that demonstrates my strength. Whereas now I'm like, no, pushing to have joy in my life as often as possible, that's real strength. Woo! Tweet that. <laughs> Tweet that. <laughs> this is oh, and can I say one thing too? Right. I think something else. Please, it's not please. just joy. Something that you introduced me to is this concept of pleasure, which before I just, I just didn't think about. And then now that I think about that, because when I, joy, I don't think it's just the, um, it, it's the happiness feeling. But I think as a woman, the concept of pleasure, I think is really important and significant. And I don't think we prioritize that enough. We don't prioritize it at all. Help me get out of my little box from that perspective. That's important too. That's definitely changed my relationship with my husband and my relationship with myself, to be honest with you. That was never on the list of priorities. And now I realize if you're getting pleasure, you're probably not as angry (laughs) all the time. But um, at the end of the day, if you show up and you're a lot more pleasant, I I would take a guess to say you're probably positioning yourself better for any type of advancement or promotion at work. I'm just saying, right? Like I tell people, when people are like super angry, you be like, he ain't getting none at home. I'm just saying, it's like, he ain't like, and and it is what it is, but it's because we're so busy trying to push for a result. Yes. Thinking that that result is what's going to make us happy and what's going to give us joy and what's going to give us pleasure. And you can have more awards on your wall than the Rockefeller Christmas tree and still be miserable. Yes. And I think now I'm enjoying the journey. Whereas before I was so focused to getting to the goal and I didn't care if I was miserable on my journey. Whereas now I'm like, no, I need to enjoy the journey. And I think once I reach that goal, I think it'll make it even better. Thank you for joining us. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast and leave us a review if you love this episode. Follow Christy on Instagram and LinkedIn. And don't forget to get her free gift by texting change now, all one word. Again, change now to 66866. Until next time, go out and win bigger.